Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. Well, my guest today is Bernadette Phelan, who is Head of Advisory Services with BITCI, Business in the Community Ireland. Bernadette works with businesses all over Ireland on their sustainability initiatives and believes that conversations in workplaces are being led now by consumers and by employees. People are very increasingly sensitive to where's my coffee from, where's my jumper from, where are we buying this machine from, where do we sell from. So employees are, are making asks of their, their, you know, the businesses as well. Debates in boardrooms are changing too, and this is driving real change in sustainability. Leaders are more comfortable to bring their whole selves to the boardroom table and go, well, actually, no, these issues matter. And so I think the debates at a boardroom level um, are changing and and people understand that uh, more is expected of individual business leaders in terms of it's not just, you know, the KPIs of delivering on a good quarterly return. And of course, there is a challenge for businesses in ensuring that women are facilitated in rising through the ranks in the same way as men. The pipeline from women, say, women not rising through the ranks. You know, there's a realisation now that that's not good. It's not good for business and and it's not good for people. Bernadette has five fantastic pearls of wisdom you'll want to hear about. But I began by asking her about her own work in BITCI. So I'm delighted to welcome Bernadette Phelan from Business in the Community Ireland to the Women in Leadership podcast. You're very welcome, Bernadette. Lovely to be talking to you, Angie. You are uh, passionate about sustainability and you're working for a terrific organisation, Business in the Community Ireland. But first of all, tell us, for people who don't know what Business in the Community Ireland is, could you just tell us a little bit about what you do and what what Business in the Community Ireland does? We are a mission-driven NGO. And that mission is about working with business to help them be more responsible and sustainable. So for for 20 years, we've been working with business to help them assess their social impact, their environmental impact, and seeing how their business activities impact on their community, on their environment. So that's the, the essence of what we try to do. Tell me, is it a hard sell to them or are they, you know, enthusiastic about helping you out or, you know, getting involved in this mission? It's really interesting to see how that mission has changed over the last 20 years. Um, Right now, it is becoming a lot easier to talk about businesses, to talk about sustainability to business, because sustainability has gone mainstream. But 10 years ago, it was not. (laughs) You were on the margins, you you were slightly out there, because I think when you look at the the kind of evolution of the role of business within sustainability and kind of mirrors our own organizational development. It started off about communities. The, I think the traditional CSR world, you know, it's about philanthropy, it's about giving back, which is still like extremely valid and it's about the volunteering. But then that evolved into the community engagement piece, into the environmental piece. And now where the discussion is at, is people are talking about, well, what risks exist within my business because of climate change? What are the issues that we're facing because we can't get the right talent? We're we're not tapping into the right people, be it, you know, um, 
the pipeline from women, say, women not rising through the ranks. You know, there's a realization now that that's not good. It's not good for business and, and it's not good for people. So I do think it, it was a hard sell, but it's become a lot, a lot easier. And in the last two years, I think what's really changed um, and made business leaders think differently about this agenda is the financial markets now care. Investors I've heard that now, from right? a few people now, even yeah. from big investors from Singapore. I have a lady coming up on the podcast in a few weeks who's going to tell me about that, how it's driving a huge lot of women's investment as well. It's a real game changer. The money men really now care. And I think when you look at what has driven that, um, like a person I'd hugely respect would be, you know, Mark Carney is the former um, governor of the Bank of England, and he's now like a, a UN envoy. He was very instrumental in setting up the task force on, on financial disclosure, which is basically that, like I studied economics, so it's that externalities piece. It's going like, there's so much unaccounted for risk in investment portfolios because we're not factoring in the risk coming from climate fluctuations, from disruption of supply chains because of climate disruptions. So we're not assessing risk correctly. And we certainly so, didn't assess the risk of a pandemic. No. And and I think as well as the, the climate piece, what we're seeing, um, and we're, we're going to talk to a lot more of our companies about it as well, are issues around human rights. Like when you, where you, when you pick up your packet of prawns, has everyone been paid a fair wage in the development of this? You know, people, I think, realise, you know, issues around modern slavery, the human rights aspects, you know, when you are buying your your top, you know, what happened in Bang, um, Bangladesh, India, I think heightened people's understanding of where stuff comes from. Um, and I don't think, you know, no one wants to see child labor in any product that they buy. So I think there's the environmental risks. There's also those kind of human social factor risks that no one wants to stand over and obviously from a business point of view it's it's your reputation it's you know your, and also you're back to basic ethics and values so I think and the capital markets begin to understand this now so it is it's really changing space so the EU are quite progressive within this as well so we're quite looking and what about the United you mentioned the UN then Mark Kearney mm-hmm. The United Nations Sustainable Strategic Development Goals, they seem to be kind of under the radar with everything. They're seeping into all decisions. That Are, are they kind of driving change within uh, the Irish market, particularly as you see it? I really hope so. I, I think they are. I think um, for me, it's not about everyone knowing the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and knowing the details of it. But they're powerful because... Policymakers, business, civil society, uh, you know, every aspect of our economy and society are now saying, OK, these are the seven and um, 17 ambitions. So they're kind of like, you know, there are North Stars now. So they're powerful from the point of view of they kind of give us the playbook of where we want to get to. And everyone's looking in the same direction, which we weren't before. You know, policymakers and business, you've kind of different different objectives. You still have different nuances. But in terms of that bigger vision, um, the, the goals are very powerful. And I do think, um, you know, when you look at, at the detail of business strategies and business policy, you can see that they've helped people kind of come together 
and become a bit more aligned. So again, as I said, I, I think when you look into the detail for me, as I said, it's not about, you know, everyone must know what they are. It's great if you do, but absolutely they've changed how people um, are approaching sustainability. And I know, I, I know, I know you're passionate about business networks, and sometimes you know you wonder, you know, are, are businesses competing with each other? But do you find through business in the community Ireland that there's kind of collaboration between them, even though they're in competition? But is you know when it comes to sustainability, is there a growing recognition of a need for collaboration? Yes, because I think businesses understand and I think we all understand that if we're to make the changes that need to happen it's about actually changing your sector these are like to have a low carbon economy there's a lot of systems changes that you're looking for which will only happen through collaboration so a business understands you need to have your own house in order in terms of understanding um, kind of your own environmental and social impacts and what risks you're carrying but it works better and it's more profitable, more effective if everyone kind of moves in collaboration. So you can see the fashion industry coming together to work in collaboration to talk about water, where they're sourcing cotton from. You can see the, the food sector coming together. And within the, the work that we do, um, given that Irish businesses have matured hugely in terms of their understanding of sustainability, but also their ambition, we're working on collaboration um, in the areas of low carbon and social inclusion. And for me, actually, at a, at a personal level and in terms of my, my day job, it's building those collaborations are really important. Um, and the group that we work with is at a CEO level because leadership buy-in is fundamental to this. You know, in terms of we're trying to turn big tankards here so the buy-in of senior leadership and having that strategic vision is, is really fundamental. So within within Ireland, we have an amazing cohort of um, business leaders that we would work with in terms of designing projects that we can all get involved in, like the Low Carbon Pledge Initiative. Later this year, we're going to be releasing a diversity and inclusion commitment. So it's everyone signing up to a common target, you know, to say by 2030, this is what we all need to have done. And, and a collaboration is healthy as well because it levels the playing field. It's not it's not just one company flying the flag. You know, it's all of us agreeing together this, that this is what we and need do, to do. Do you find there's much collaboration between the, the various CEOs? Are they good at building? I presume they recognise it's in their own interest to, to go along with these goals. Um, in terms of pre-competitiveness issues, yes. Because at a very basic level, it's in everyone's interest to have, um, you know, you don't want marginalised cohorts within your society. To use that as an example, like Brexit in the US, that happened from people being on the margins. That's not healthy and it creates economic imbalance. So it's in business's interest to ensure everyone has access to education, everyone has access to employment, um, because large kind of inequality gaps are quite destabilizing within a society. You know, we're living that. Um, and business leaders don't want that. They don't want it, I think, in terms of, say, individual value set. But if you're being cold in the cold light of, say, the economics, it's, it's destabilizing and it, it's not conducive for, for good business. They want happy, healthy consumers who are engaging in, in purchasing their their products but I think business leaders also are very much listening 
um, to what people want. Like, like say the, the Climate um, Citizens Assembly. That was really powerful in terms of what us as a society want to see. Like that's, in, that's the world we live in. So consumer expectations, what their employees want um, is really important because for a business, they want to keep their people. They want their people to be happy and engaged and people demand certain norms. And I think um, people are very increasingly, as I was saying, sensitive to where's my coffee from? Where's my jumper from? Where are we buying this machine from? Where do we sell from? So employees are, are making asks of their, their, you know, the businesses as well. Bernadette, is there a certain urgency about, you know, putting these sustainability goals into action? Absolutely. I really believe that the next 10 years are where we're going to either win or lose um, in the, the sustainability piece, because um, we have to kind of turn turn the ship, get those trajectories right in terms of what products um, we're using what type of materials are going into products where we're buying from because um, I think if if we don't change in the next 10 years um, we run huge risks and I I do commend and you know both businesses and national governments coming out with 2050 targets you know net zero by 2050 but it also really frustrates me because and also puts the fear in it's so far away I don't think as people we can kind of grasp that time frame. Um, and I think we run the risks of, you know, making policy decisions where you can just, we'll just push it another five years. We don't have to deal with it right now, where I actually feel there's a huge urgency need to be maintained w- within the next w- decade. And that that will be one of my kind of key key drivers at the moment, actually, is to maintain that sense of urgency. Um, and I suppose the, the pandemic has taught us one thing, it's that things can change overnight and that you can yes. change the working from home, you can yeah. change how we consume, using our cars, all of that can change very fast if we have the will. And again, a horrible thing to have to say, but that is one of the positive learnings out of the pandemic is how at speed, at scale, we can change so fast when there's a burning platform. And, and again, back to that concept of collaboration, how government, business, civil society, we could all come together on a focused common goal and make really swift change and have, have impact. And I think to be able to bring that experience to bear on the climate battle that we have ahead is just so important because it should, it should actually buoy us in our self-belief of our capacity for change. Um, and I hope we don't forget that, you know, the, what we're living through is so difficult. I think it's so important that we try and take the lessons from it. Mm. And as, as you said there, I actually think that's one of the key things we need to remember is we can we can do this if the will is there. So you, you just just to go back into your own career, you said you were an economist. Um, tell me what drives you and, you know, when did this start with you? Did you study economics in college? And was this even part of the agenda when you were in college, the whole sustainability aspect? Um, I studied economics and geography, and I love both equally. And um, I did my master's then in regional development because there wasn't a master's in sustainable development um, when I was finishing college. And um, I have equal love for both disciplines, which I think feeds into why I work in sustainability. And 
you know, it's so obvious when I look back in terms of why these were my natural interests, because I grew up in the countryside, but very early. Where? You've got to tell us where. Um, outside Turles in Tipperary. And so um, country kid. So I think that obviously an appreciation for nature, but I developed a fascination for maps. But I think probably very fu- fundamental, I grew up in a family business. So we were in the village pub and shop. So, you know, you're opposite the church, you're beside the school, community halls. So, you know, just from living, you realize the interdependency between business and the community in which it's based. You know, your customers are your neighbors, your employees are your neighbors. You're buying, you know, meat from local farms. So I think that very much kind of influenced my understanding of what a business is and how it connects with its customers and the role that it plays in society. Um, I think as well, I would have witnessed um, that the closing of Thurla Sugar Factory, which again, when I think about it, left quite the imprint because I went from seeing the boom, you know, during the campaign, the money flowed, you know, you could see that. And then witnessing the impact and the decline on a rural town with the closure of that. So I think Didn't that come from an EU directive on sugar. I think so. Yeah, it was kind of the late 90s. And because that like when they all went Carlo, Tume, Thurlis. So I think I kind of lived firsthand that kind of, you know, the economic cycles. But also it wasn't just the closing of the business. For me, it was living and seeing that the impact on the community in which I lived. So I think it was those type of lived experiences kind of cultivated that joint interest in terms of place and people and economy. And that's kind of what I've I've carried through because yes, sustainability as a as a concept was only emerging through the the was the Birchland Commission report at the time as an actual discipline. Um and I, I think what I've always kind of gravitated towards within the sustainability realm as well was that role of business which mightn't automatically be everyone's kind of um bent on it but uh, i think um you know your parents are business owners so i understand that good ethics can exist within business and that business is is powerful so i think that's kind of what i i gravitated towards it's interesting you say you know ethics can be I mean there was a sort of an implication 20 years ago well the business was inherently unethical <laughs> like yeah. people are just out to get what they get but I think there is a realization coming that it is part of a community just like in business in the community yeah. is part of the community and has a very powerful role to play and that it's a two-way street as well uh, and uh, I think yes you know the, the classic kind of 1980s greed is good I think that that mindset has very much gone past its sell-by date and that people understand interconnections, interdependencies. And I I think as well, um, you know, that concept within business of for employees, what's the purpose of what we're doing? You know, I think that's more more heightened. But I do think people realize that um you want a long-term profitable business as well. You know, when you look at what Paul Pullman has done in Unilever, that um, you know, the short-termism, that quarterly cycle is so destructive. You know, you may be able to generate large profits for a certain period of time, but it doesn't build a, a robust long-term business. And again, I think for me, I, 
I always have that, you know, business owners are people, they're, they're human beings. Most people want to leave a positive legacy, you know, and engage. Um, people would like a good. planet to be here for their children yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I do think the the kind of role of business is very much, much changing. We can see it in Irish business leaders as well in terms of what their own priorities are. I remember being at one of your Carbon Pledge uh, conferences, I think it was in Price Waterhouse or PwC's place, and uh, the chief executive of, uh, of PwC, Fergal O'Rourke, is it? Yeah, he was saying a lot of the push is coming from business leaders' own children. So they're hearing a lot of this in school and saying like, Daddy or Mommy, you know, Mom, why aren't, why isn't your company? And what is, you know, holding the, the parents to account? And he said this was happening in his house. And I've heard that from several people too. Do you think that's a factor, kind of the, the push-pull factors, they'd say, in economics, but being driven from the bottom up? I absolutely think so. I think, um, and it's something I think it's so important to remember that NGO and civil society movements influence business. As I said, families, their employees, their customers, all of this change um, business is open to because business, you know, the joy of business is moving quickly, creating a product or service and, and selling it. That's what business kind of lives to do. So they will change. They're not these kind of fixed um, entities. So I definitely think that kind of grassroots piece influences. And again, you know, I've had the, the privilege to sit in rooms with um, groups of Irish CEOs and, you know, they are really impressed by Greta Thunberg. They are. Really? Yeah, they genuinely are. And they are as in their private lives, they are as fearful as all of us are about what's coming down the track and the fear of the unknown. And I think increasingly we realizing that um, the positions that they hold, you know, give them an opportunity to do more. And I think that's an important piece as well, because um, in terms of the, the leadership narrative, you can see it from, you know, Edelman surveys and stuff like that. But people are expecting more from senior leaders as well. Um, they're expecting them to bring their personal viewpoint and ethics into their work. I think previously you could be, you know, an environmentalist in your private life, but you kind of parked it when you sat at the boardroom table. I think now leaders are more comfortable to bring their whole selves to the boardroom table and go, well, actually know these issues matter and so I think the debates at a boardroom level um, are changing and and people understand that uh, more is expected of individual business leaders in terms of it's not just you know the KPIs of delivering on a good quarterly return. You mentioned uh, gender balance there it still seems very slow that there's gender balance coming up through the ranks to leadership levels. Are you seeing that escalating? Um, we have a long way to go, um, but there is a lot of focused work and, and kind of redesign of, of programs to help get better diversity at senior teams, boardrooms, allow those progression plots. So we have a long way to go, but... Um, we and again from the the privilege of our work we've insight into what a lot of corporates are doing you know the the idea of um different type of working models flexible working um are supporting say for instance the the gender piece but i think and this you know my own framing on it is 
it's also say that example of flexible working it's not just about women it's about all employees because everyone in life has responsibilities caring everyone you know may need to take six months out and take that kind of leave of absence and, and i think when you look at the profile of young men and in terms of how they want to be dads how they want to live their life how you maybe want to go mountain climbing for six months and then be able to come back to your job i think there is a general rethinking of what good work practices are and good cultures are that their origin stories are probably grounded in trying to get more women into the pipeline but i think the impact they'll have will be just better workplaces for all and i think obviously one of the you know the the pieces you're trying to move away from is you know that fear of it's the women going on maternity leave and the costs of that but if this is something everyone does, then you're back to a level playing field and it's not an issue. And again, I think back to societal norms. Um, as I said, the origins are to cultivate better engagement from women, but it just makes for a better work culture. Yeah, I think probably people come back better people when they've been able to go away and look at the workplace from a different perspective and experience a different aspect of life and come back in refreshed with new ideas. And again, we would have conversations with our companies as well about, um, you know, the increased pension age. And we're all going to be living longer, which means we're all going to be working longer. So this concept of having different careers through your life, you know, this and again, in terms of a social sustainability issue, that idea of reskilling, re-education lifelong learning like the irish stats around lifelong learning were not that great i think when you look at look at some of the european league tables um and again we those conversations around as a responsible business how do you help people within their role to retrain re-educate um and you need to be looking at that because we're going to be able working for a long time but again given that you're going to be working for many years increased pension age you will need to have gaps out that will just happen as part of life for many different reasons. So how do you design a business that can kind of flex to that? It, so it's really it's good to hear that that sort of thinking is going on at the upper levels. You know, it's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Just to come back to you, you personally, before we wrap it up, tell me, you know, from all your life experience, from your education, from growing up in TIP and being part of that huge, wonderful network, what are your top five pearls of wisdom that you've garnered over the years? Um listen and proper listen because for me listening is actually about being open so I think being open is really really important um and so that would be one of my fundamental approaches to to my work and life and also I think connect and I know a lot of people say network for me it's not about networking it's about connecting with people that disagree with you it's about understanding you know walks of life that you wouldn't experience. You know, I actively try to find, you know, people that would, I know disagree with me, have different worldviews. And I think it's very important to understand and to have empathy for different life experiences and, and to kind of challenge your own thinking. So so connection in the in the broader piece. Um I also think as well, and you know, this comes kind of say from designing collaborations and stuff like that once you've listened, <laughs> once you've heard what people say, leadership is a judgment call. So it's about being decisive. You know, you kind of then just have to trust 
yourself in terms of where you're at um, and make that call. And then my last one probably um, is about persistence. That's what I believe in. My first chairman, one of his key phrases was plow on. <laughs> um, I think um, for any of you personal or, or kind of business school, you know, grit, I believe in, in grit is, is important. And I think sometimes that can be a little bit forgotten. It takes a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it? Just to plow on, you know, when, when you think you're up against it. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, working in sustainability for 20 years and change has been slow. Um, so you have to, uh, I think, just kind of steal yourself to, you know, what you believe um, needs to happen and to kind of keep, keep plowing on. And um, I think also within that as well to recognise what maybe the smaller wins or the small changes and to understand that those small building blocks and those um, changes do accumulate to, to the bigger ambitions. So I, I think you need to be able to, you know, break down the lofty goals into very kind of practical bite-sized chunks if you're designing a you know, sustainability project or a big programme. Um, and to recognise, I think that's one of the things the business and the community does so well. You kind of recognise and you know, showcase those who have done things. I know some of the employment schemes that you've got, particularly with the ESB, I think was one of them. Yeah. You know, they they actually showcase what has been done, maybe even under the radar. Uh, does that really work for business in the community? It does, because ultimately we would see ourselves as practitioners. We're doers. Um, I, I think within the world of sustainability, there's um, there's a lot of complexity, you know, it has its own language, there's all these methodologies and frameworks and you can get lost in all of that. So we like to strip it back to its kind of bare essence of, well, what action really matters here? So we talk about very, very practical things. And I think within anything, it's, ha- it's the doing, it's the how, that's where people struggle. struggle. You know, I think um, within business and it's human nature, we can all sit down and write very complex and you know, beautifully sounding strategies, but follow through on them is what's really important. So so we would very much, and for myself, I like to get stuck in and make those small changes and to understand that small things matter. So it is about, and celebrating that. So how do you plough on? How do you do that yourself in your own life, in like in your own domestic life? Are you good at doing the recycling and sorting all those things? Do you cycle to work? Tell me, how do you put sustainability into, into practice in your own life? Yeah, I try. I try because, again, it's not easy. Um, public transport, obviously, would be one of my own big pieces and I think that's quite important yes in my home it's all about recycling I'm very conscious of where I buy my food from I'd be very focused on local local purchasing if I'm buying anything actually I like to buy Irish um, and that's important for me also in terms of like for for clothes and stuff like that I, I don't buy much but I like to buy well and then have it for a long time. So that that principle of, you know, buying something that's good and, and then you have it. Also within my clothes, um, you know, secondhand, vintage. Vintage is quite a trend. My wedding dress was vintage, you know. So um, I think that's something I'd be very mm-hmm. conscious of. But also, and I think sometimes people forget about this when they're talking about what you can do. I'm a novice gardener and... Again, 
you know planting for the bees planting trees i think that's really important as well because when you're talking about sustainability people automatically think about the drudge of recycling or what you can't have i always like to say to people it's important as well to remember why you're doing this you know and it's that connection with nature so get out there garden even if it's plant a few you feel better too i mean literally grounds you and you're digging your hands into the soil doesn't it yeah it's back to this whole piece that you know and it kind of galls me that sustainability is all about what you lose and it's a risk and you know there's a lot of negative framing around it but for me it's about as human beings nature is so good for us it's so good scientifically proven for you know the Japanese and their their forest bathing in terms of our mental health and there's such you know there's mental health issues are so high at the moment so connection to nature but also then in a business context it's new products new opportunities you know so that try to focus i think on the, on the positive i've yeah. never heard of uh, forest bathing so as soon as this call is over i'm going to google that <laughs> so when we get when we get out of our five yeah. kilometer i'll be down, yeah. down to wicklow just investigating that one um before we wrap up tell me your the best bit of financial advice now we were talking earlier about how financial uh, decisions making at you know at really senior level is driving change and sustainability but you know in your own financial world what's the best bit of financial advice you ever got by a pension. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> it didn't make sense to you at the time, though. No, I what I age were you? <laughs> I was, I think I was 25 when I got my first pension. Um, and again, it's probably back to just thinking long, the long term piece. So pension is a very important one. And the other piece, and I had to do it when I got my first mortgage, was a notebook and writing down everything that you spend money on. If you don't know what you're spending your money on, I think that can be quite an eye opener to realize how much you spend on the coffees. And is, the, is that not an awful lot of work? I don't think I could be that disciplined. I don't do it now, but I think okay. at a point in time, every so often, know exactly it's where it's all going. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. The pension is important, though, so we're all going to be hopefully have long someday long good lives so please god yeah um so finally music i can tell that you're into music i don't know why it could be something to do with that musical instrument behind you which the <laughs> listeners can't see <laughs> are you a musical person yes I and love. What, what's your go-to piece of music or your selection of music that you like again i've broad tastes but um if i need a pep i'd probably put on like ziggy stardust something like that or um teenager in the 90s somewhere or the pixies something with big big guitars <laughs> brilliant brilliant that keeps you going <laughs> yeah brent it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you so much for doing the women in leadership podcast it's been a pleasure talking to you and the best of luck with your own work in business in the community ireland thank you very much Thanks to Bernadette Phelan there of BITCI, Business in the Community Ireland, who was my guest this week on this episode of the Women in Leadership podcast. Plough on, the best bit of advice I've heard this week. It does take grit and determination to get through. And don't we know that at the moment? Well, thanks to you, our listeners, for your support. Much appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can get in touch with us on the website, womeninleadership.ie, or follow us on Twitter at Leading Women Pod. And we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all of the team here on the Women in Leadership podcast, goodbye and take care. <laughs> <laughs>